invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians, one of Paul's letters in the New Testament. If you do not have a Bible, uh, there you will likely find one under one of the chairs in front of you. We are in Ephesians chapter 1, which you will find in that Bible on page 976. Ephesians chapter 1. One of the, the things that everyone kind of knows about uh, military life, or at least in this country, uh, is generally the concept of basic training. I mean, we, we hear people talk about it, we see it portrayed in television and in movies. We all kind of have a sense that, uh, of what basic training is about. We certainly know it exists. The question is, what, does, what is the intention of basic training? Uh, what is it really all about? Well, if you go to the Army's websites, and I imagine the other branches of our military would define it similarly, you'll find this description of basic training. Quote, the 10-week journey from civilian to soldier. Basic combat training is a training course that transforms civilians into soldiers. Over the course of 10 weeks, these recruits learn about the seven core Army values, how to work together as a team, and what it takes to succeed as a soldier in the United States Army, end quote. Now, if I were to summarize that, what I would say basic training is about is identity formation. Identity formation. They're taking someone who may know absolutely nothing about the Army, nothing about the military. They have no experience at being a soldier, and they are more or less creating an identity of soldier in that person. They are filling their mind up with ideas and expectations, right and wrong ways of thinking, so that what they start with is someone who is not a soldier, and what they end with is someone who is a soldier. Now, training is not meant to be exhaustive, but it is meant to be a foundational time in their life where they move from non-military to military, knowing how to think and act and live like a soldier. Now, in many ways... If that is what basic training is all about, then that is very much what we find in this letter to the Ephesians. Unlike the other letters that Paul has written, there is no obvious problem in the church at Ephesus or the surrounding churches. Rather, it seems the fruitful ministry that Paul began in Ephesus, which you can read about in the book of Acts, uh, even after he has left, the Christians there have continued on with that ministry, seeing the gospel grow and grow and grow among particularly the Gentile uh, people in these cities. And so all of these new converts are coming in, and Paul is thankful for this. He is thankful for this ministry and yet he is wanting to write and help those Christians out by giving them, as it were, a letter of basic training. He is seeking to, to help with their identity formation now that they are in Christ. Paul is teaching them how to think, how to act, and how to live as God's people under the lordship of Christ. And so as we seek to get this morning, as we continue through the series that we're in, to get just a snapshot of the book of Ephesians as a whole, we want to do so from Ephesians chapter 1 this morning. And perhaps you're here this morning and you're, you're not a Christian. And this morning what you will find is a, an overview of what God has done for his people. But I imagine most of you here this morning are Christians, and so we want to be reminded this morning of what God has done for us so that, though it may, hopefully will not be basic training for us, 
perhaps nevertheless it will cause us to remember the things that we have already been taught and be strengthened and encouraged in our understanding of what our identity is in Jesus Christ and that we would understand what it means to be distinct from those around us, no longer civilians as it were, but rather soldiers living under the lordship of Christ. That's our desire this morning. And so let me ask you to follow along as I begin reading in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. May God bless the reading of his word. In these verses, Paul begins this letter with an amazing offering of praise to God for who his people are in Christ. In fact, this idea of praise begins at the very beginning, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us, his people, in Christ with every spiritual blessing and the heavenly places. Paul says, God is the one who should be blessed by us. That is, he is the one who should be praised and magnified and honored by us because he has blessed us in Christ. And more than that, he has blessed us in every conceivable way. There's nothing he has left out as a part of his blessings on his people. And what we see is this idea of praise for God or to God for what he has done permeates our passage. We saw it in verse 3, we see it in verse 6, we see it in verse 12 and verse 14 that all that God is doing is ultimately done so that we would magnify his name, that we would give him praise, that we would make his glory known not just among us but among all peoples on the earth. So as we think about our life as Christ, one of the immediate effects should be a desire to give praise to God. You just think about that. When, when anyone, even just today, well, let's say you walked outside your house and, and your neighbor had already gone out to do something else, hopefully church, but maybe just the store, and uh, they saw your car buried under the snow and they got theirs all uncovered and unburied and got the heat going, and they walked over and just went ahead and undid yours. What would you do? You would, you would give them praise, wouldn't you? You would say, well, thanks for doing that for me. That was great. That, 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 was, that was nice. I, I appreciate that. And what Paul wants us to see is how much more when we know all that God has done for us in Christ, how much more should we not just fall on our faces in humble praise to the amazing lavishing that he says of his grace, his love, his mercy upon us in Christ. All we can do 
not all we can do, but the first thing we should do is stand back and just give him glory and say, God, you have done an amazing and marvelous thing and we give you praise for it. That is, that is what drives all of what Paul is describing for us in this passage. Specifically, he describes four realities of our life in Christ that should help reorient our thinking, our living, even our loving as God's people. Four realities that should cause us to live every day, every moment, in humble worship of Christ our Lord. So let me give you these four realities, these Uh, four basics, as it were, of who we are now in Christ as his people. First of all, we should praise God for his loving election. We should praise God for his loving election. We see this in verses 4 through 6. Paul begins by telling us that every believer has received every spiritual blessing from God. And the first blessing that he mentions is God's election. Paul says, we were chosen in Him, that is, we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Here is the amazing reality that is true for anyone who has ever put their faith in God for salvation. They did so because God first chose them. They chose to believe because God first chose them. Paul even says this took place before the very foundation of the world. So before God creates all things, before, before he speaks light and, uh, and creates darkness, before he, he makes this world and populates it with animals and people made in his image, he has the desire to create. And in having this desire, he knows what's going to happen. People who are made in his image, who have been given his love and his blessing, we are going to rebel against him. And he has, he has a couple options, doesn't he? He can either say, forget that. Not going to create. Why bother? Or he can say, I can create them in such a way that they will not have desires, they will not have freedom in how they live, and they will just always obey me. Or he says, I can create them, I can let them rebel, but then I can save a people for myself. I can bring redemption into this infestation of sin and rebellion and hatred towards me and so magnify even more my love and goodness and glory. And that's exactly what he has chosen to do. Out of the entirety of the sea of humanity who would always willingly choose sin and experience hell if left to themselves, God reaches down and chooses to save a people for himself. And notice, this choice is not just based on divine whimsy. It's not just arbitrary. Paul says that this choice of salvation was rooted in God's love. The doctrine of God's election of sinners to salvation can be off-putting, I know it seems odd, it somehow seems unfair, and yet it is the consistent theme of the entire Bible. Over and over again we see it in Romans chapter 9. Paul points us all the way back to the book of Genesis, to Abraham's son Isaac and the twin sons that were born to his wife. He says this, when Rebekah, Isaac's wife, when she had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they had not done They had not yet been born and done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. They've not been born. 
They thought that anything good or bad, and yet God, exercising sovereign choice, says, I will love Jacob and bring the promise through him. Jacob, of course, went on to have 12 sons of his own, which grew into 12 tribes. And eventually those 12 tribes became the nation of Israel, God's special people. But why was Israel God's special people? Why did he choose to work through them? Moses told them in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 7, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you yourselves were the fewest of all peoples. In other words, Moses tells them, look, it's not because you were great like Egypt. You're not going to be mighty like Babylon and Persia. You're not going to be this massive great army that's going to produce all this great art and culture. It's not for those reasons God chose you. It is because the Lord loves you. Moses says, you can't go bark any farther than that. He loved you because he loved you. It was his choice to set his affection on you. Likewise, Jeremiah, uh, the prophet uh, of, of Israel, he says that his calling and his service came by God's choice. In chapter 1, he says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, Jeremiah, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I set you apart. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Even Jesus himself told his disciples, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Those who are saved, those who believe are saved by God's choice. And so the Apostle John says, We love him because God first loved us. Now, frankly, we, we could spend the rest of the sermon just talking on this and, and unpacking it and saying this is, what it, it, this is what it means, this is what it doesn't mean, this is what it means, this is what it doesn't mean. But let me just say this for the shortness of time's sake. We have seen repeatedly over and over again, we just saw it a few weeks ago when we looked at 2 Corinthians, left to ourselves, we are dead in our trespasses and our sins. We are blinded by the God of this age. And if God simply left us to ourselves, we would never choose him. We would hear the gospel again and again and again. And because we love our sin, we would never choose him. And so if anyone would be saved, God must come in and do a work in their now, some have different, uh, different ways of expressing that. Some would say, well, well, it seems like God is not fair. Here's the reality. If you want fair, if you want justice, there is no salvation. We are sinners. We deserve hell. It is mercy that we want. Mercy that says, despite the fact you deserve hell, I will come and I will redeem a people for you. But again, the question still lingers in people's minds. Why, why about this choice? Well, here's the, here's the reality. Some, some would not understand this doctrine of election this way. We, they would have a totally different understanding for it. Some, some don't like it because, frankly, it, it strikes to the heart of our pride, doesn't it, that somehow we were smart enough to choose. We were smart enough to figure it out, though our brother or sister or mother or father or friend did not. Whether or not God has chosen people for himself and called out to them by his grace, you still have the problem that some people die and go to hell. And some people are saved. Right? This is the reality. The Bible shows it over and over again. We ourselves have seen it. And what, what, what it comes down to is how are you going to answer that? How are you going to answer? Are you going to say God created a world where potentially nobody would ever choose him and everybody could go to hell? Or do you say, 
God created a world in which everyone was going to hell, and yet he came in and rescued a people for himself. And nothing but love and mercy, he came down and he reaches and he says, I am calling you to be my child. And not as if we don't want to do it and he makes us do it. No, he so opens our eyes to his love and his beauty and the glory of who he is and what he has done for us in Christ that we say, yes, why would I ever not believe that? Why would I ever not trust you? Why would I ever not joyfully worship you and serve you with my life? Furthermore, as God's people, and how do we minister if this is true? The reality is only God knows. Only God knows those whom he has chosen. The, the, the call is not for us to look at somebody and say, I don't think God wants them saved. That's not at all what we are to do. He says, take the gospel to all nations. And the, the confidence we have that someone's actually going to believe is because like Paul, he says, I, like Jesus said rather, I have other sheep that are not this fold. In other words, there are other people that he has chosen for salvation out there and he has waited for us to go take the gospel to them that he might call them to himself and they might believe. Furthermore, it is never appropriate for us to stand back as someone who is not a Christian and say, well, maybe God hasn't chosen me. No, what does Jesus say? All who come to me, who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The idea is, we don't say on the front end, well, you've got to be elect in order to be saved. No, that's not what Jesus said. He said, believe. He said, turn to me and see one who died on the cross for you. But it is after we have believed. It is after we have trusted in Christ that we are able to look back and see, yes, I chose him. I freely, joyfully wanted Christ as my own. And yet it was God who was the one who was drawing me to himself. This is the doctrine of election. But notice what Paul says it should lead us to. He says, in, uh, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. For in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. God has chosen his people and he desires them to be holy and blameless. But how is this going to happen? How are we going to be motivated to live a life that is pleasing to God? He says our motivation is our adoption as sons. In other words, we are pursue holiness. We pursue godliness. Not because we know that's going to make us right with God, but because we have the assurance we're already God's children. I always tell my kids, I try to get them to understand. I don't just discipline them. And then kiss them. I kiss them first and say, I love you. You're my son. You're my daughter. That will never change. And because I already love you, you understand, nothing you could possibly do is ever going to change that. Nevertheless, because I love you, obey me. Obey me. Because what that means is when I tell you don't do this or do this, I know it's best for you. I'm not out to get you. I'm not out to hurt you. I'm not out to just give you as many spankings and timeouts as I can. I love you. Therefore, trust me and obey me. And God says the same thing. He says, I've chosen you. I've chosen you to be my son. I've adopted you as my son. Nothing is ever going to change that. Therefore, therefore, trust me and obey me. Pursue the holiness and blamelessness to which I have called you. Because of 
God's election. Because of his adoption, we have an assurance of his love that leads us to live the kind of life that is pleasing to him, that gives him glory and honor and praise. But before we get to that, we have to ask ourselves, how is it possible, though, that sinners can be adopted as the children of a holy God? How is it a God who is without sin can accept those who are steeped in sin? This is the second thing we see this morning, that we should praise God for his redeeming forgiveness. We should praise God for his redeeming forgiveness. God can't just say, you're saved. He can't just say, though you are wicked, though you have rebelled against me, though you have refused to love me and you have worshipped other things, like we talked about in Sunday school, you can worship your job, you can worship your family, you put those things in priority above God and so reject him as Lord. Perhaps even you've done something by our standards, really bad. You've murdered somebody. God can't just say, ah, don't worry about that. You're still my son. Can't do that. Because God is not just holy. He's not just without sin. He is a just and righteous God. Can you imagine a judge who had a murderer before him and he says, so you committed this murder? And the guy, you know, in the cuff says, yes. And he says, are you sorry you did it? Yes. Are you going to do it again? No. All right, then you're free to go. I mean, that guy would be voted out pretty quick, wouldn't he? I mean, we talk about the state appealing something, but how much more so with God? He has created all things. He's not just a judge. He's not just a mere person. He is in himself righteous and holy. If we know anything of justice, it is because it is rooted in God himself. He can't just say, don't worry about it. Something must happen by which sin is punished. And what that something is, Paul says, is the actual sending of one who would take the punishment for us. In verses 7 and 8, Paul says, In Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. In Christ we have redemption. We looked at this word last week. Let's just think about it again because it lies at the heart of what Christ has done for his people. You remember the story of the Exodus where God's people, Israel, they are in bondage. They're literally in slavery, forced to, uh, to work for the Egyptians. And yet God comes and he redeems them from that slavery. He frees them from bondage that they might come and worship him on his holy mountain. And Paul says in the same way, Christ has won our freedom, not from physical slavery, but from spiritual slavery. We have been freed from our sins. Paul says specifically our redemption is the forgiveness of our trespasses. As God's people, we are no longer enslaved to sin. That has been broken. But what's more than that, we have been freed from the guilt of our sins. God no longer holds our guilt for us. Instead, he forgives us of our trespasses. Though in sin we have rejected God as God, we have worshipped other things in idolatry, we we deserve God's eternal judgment, yet he forgives us in Christ. Some of you may have seen the movie Saving Private Ryan. The plot is based on a true story of one man whose brothers have been killed in the course of fighting in World War II. He is the only son left to carry on the family name, so the army issues orders for a unit of troops to go and find him and and bring him home, much to the comfort of his mother and the propagation of his family line. And it is this unit that is sent deep into enemy lines 
facing danger, some of them actually giving up their lives, seeking to find this one private Ryan and send him home. In fact, it is near the the end of the film when Ryan has finally been found and they are fighting one last battle to hold back the Nazis before he is sent home and the unit's captain, the man in charge of it continuing to motivate and lead this group to find Private Ryan, he is shot, mortally wounded. And as he lies dying, he looks up into Ryan's face and he says these two words, earn this, earn this. In other words, make your life worthy of the sacrifice that was offered for you by these lives. And it's the weight of these words. Some 40 years later in the movie, as Ryan is now an old man standing over the captain's grave, that caused him to collapse in tears, sobbing out to his wife, asking, Have I been a good man? Tell me, I've lived a good life. And she says, Yes, yes, of course, of course. But the tears keep coming. Why? Because how can he ever be sure? These are men that didn't just sacrifice themselves for a country. They didn't just sacrifice themselves for the freedom of a nation. They sacrificed themselves specifically that he might be free from fighting. And he's left wondering at the end, have I really lived the kind of life that is worth that level of sacrifice? Have I really earned their death for my life? Well, frankly, I don't, I don't know that anybody could live up to that. I don't know anybody could actually earn that with their life. Yet with that weight in mind, consider, consider what God did to free us from our sins. It was, not, it was not the blood of animals and any kind of old covenant religious ceremony that was offered. It was not even the blood of good and noble men fighting for our freedom. Rather, it was the blood of God's own Son, Jesus Christ, that was shed in order to secure our freedom from sin. That kind of sacrifice is something we can never earn with our lives. We can never fully live a life worthy of that kind of offering for us, for our freedom. And God knows that. That is why Paul says this forgiveness of sins, this salvation comes to us as a gift of God's grace. You know what grace is about? Getting something you don't deserve. Getting something you can't earn. Getting something you can't work for. What is the effect that should have on our lives? it should completely shatter any pride we would ever have before God. Because he says this, there is no way in the world you could ever live a righteous enough life that I would forgive you. It's not cosmic scales. Well, if I do just enough good, it's going to outweigh the bad and I'll be fine. God says, no, even even the smallest offense is an offense against a holy God, an infinitely holy God, and deserves an infinitely just punishment. You can't earn that. But I will give you my son, a perfect sacrifice in your place. The judgment you deserve for your sins will fall on him. And understand, you don't earn that salvation. You don't earn that. It comes as my gift. And so we can't say, well, I'm a good Christian. And so, you know, God is, God is, God is pleased with me. He, is, he wanted me on his team because he knew how great of a Christian I'm going to be. No. 
It grinds that kind of pride to the dust because you look back and you say, he is the one that first chose me. He is the one who offered his own son for me. He is the one who took a sinner and made him his child. I can never earn that back. And yet God says, you don't have to. I've given this to you as a gift of my grace. The third thing that we see that we should give God praise for, the third thing that we should know about our identity in Christ is this. We should praise God for revealing his will. We should praise God for revealing his will. We see this in verses 9 through 10. So far, Paul has been describing how God has united sinners to himself through the redemption that comes through his son, Jesus Christ. But notice that Paul reminds the Ephesian Christians that this comes to them in having been told of something much bigger, much grander. In verse 8, he says, God has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Some argue this is actually the thesis statement of the letter itself, that Paul's explaining that God has revealed to his people his plan from eternity past, that all things would come to be united in Christ. Now, the first thing you should notice is that Paul calls this a mystery. He says, he has made known to us the mystery of his will. Now, what's so mysterious about it? Well, you have to understand in Paul's day, there was something called the mystery religions. And they were these little cults that would pop up. And basically, the, the, the point was, they would entice you to join their cult by giving you just a little bit of information about what they believed, but not the whole picture. And it was as you advanced in their mind, and according to their understanding, spiritually, and of course you gave more and more and more and more uh, into the coffers of the cult, then they would give you a little bit and a little bit and a little bit more of this mysterious knowledge that was held back only for the really spiritual. Uh, fr- frankly, it's very much like Scientology today. I mean, if you, you know, they, they promise you a good life that comes from clear thinking, positive energy, a, 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 a clear understanding of your spiritual reality. And that, and that sounds like good stuff we would want, right? To live a better life by deeper spiritual understanding. But it's only after you take course after course after course and pay for course after course after course that then they begin to to tell you the really weird stuff that all of this is based on, things like reincarnation and alien confederacies and other planets. And it gets pretty, pretty wacko, okay? Uh, and you've wind up investing somewhere between three hundred and and $500,000. But you know what Paul says? He says, that's not Christianity. He says, that's not Christianity. He says, there, there, there's no secret handshakes at the door. There's no hidden knowledge. There's no, once, you, once you've contributed a certain amount, then we'll tell you what we really believe. He says it's all out in the open. For him, the mystery is something that was once hidden, but has now been revealed. It wasn't clear to the Old Testament people what was going to happen. But now that Christ has come, remember we read in Hebrews 1, he has spoken a superior word. Everything has become clear. That God's plan has been to unite all things in him. When Paul says all things, he's not being hyperbolic. He's not being over the top. He means everything in heaven and on earth is going to be put back together in a right way in Christ. You see, when sin invaded the world, it didn't just affect people. It it affected everything. All of creation is out of kilter because of sin. And Paul says God's plan is to put it all back together the way it's supposed to in Christ. 
There is disharmony in the spiritual places. Uh, the Bible tells us that uh, the, 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 the demon we call the devil led, uh, wanted to rebel against God. And so you have uh, the, the demons that, that went with him that have now been outcast. And so now there is uh, disharmony, as it were, in the wholeness of a holy heaven. There's demonic forces opposed to God in the spiritual realm. Paul says, at the cross, God defeated those powers. They're finished. They're done. In Ephesians chapter 6, later he will say, it was God who seated Christ at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, all words for demonic forces. He set Christ above every name of his name, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And in his, the next book that we'll look at in a couple of weeks, Colossians, he's even more explicit. He says that through the cross and resurrection, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. In Christ, God restores, he restores the unity of godliness in the heavenly places. But Paul focuses far more on the earthly realities. Supremely, he speaks of sinful humanity being reconciled to God. Those who were dead in their trespasses and sins have been made alive together with Christ. Moreover, it is now through this reconciliation between sinner and God that reconciliation can take place between humanity. In chapters 5 and 6, Paul says, Now in Christ, here's how husbands and wives are supposed to relate to one another. Unified. Here's how parents and children are supposed to relate to one another. Unified. Here's how employers and employees are supposed to relate to one another. Unified. More broadly, Paul even says, In Christ now, ethnic lines are no hindrance to fellowship. They're no hindrance to humanity coming together as one united people. The Jews, the Gentiles, and Pauls, they hated each other for lots of different reasons. And yet Paul says, now in Christ there is no Jew or Gentile. Those things don't matter anymore. We are now one new man in Christ. All of this is a profound mystery that has been revealed to God's people in the coming of Christ. It is in him that everything is going to be united. But frankly, I'm not sure if we even, with that explanation, get the weight of it. So let me give you an illustration. A true story that shows how this uniting work of Christ takes place. If you were to come to my home and you were to go into my study, as soon as you walked in the door, if you were to turn around and look up, you would see a couple of pictures on the wall. And one of them, in a gold frame, an 8 by 10 cut out of a, of a, uh, of a book, as a picture of two guys. One is tall and thin. He's balding. He's graying. He's got a beard. And the other is a shorter guy, a little, bit, a little bit heavier, clearly from some South American country. The, the second guy is holding a spear as well. Now, when you first see this, you say, what, what's going on here? Because the other guy is holding a microphone up to, up to his mouth. Well, let me tell you who these two people are. One, the tall, older man is a man by the name of Steve Saint. He is the son of Nate Saint, a missionary who in the 1950s went to the Wadawi Indian tribe in Ecuador, a tribe known for um, uh, warfare and killing and murder, not just in their own tribe, but in all the surrounding tribes. And, and uh, Nate Saint uh, was a pilot who helped fly a plane in so that they might take the gospel to this Wadawi people, seeing them not only having their sins forgiven, but hopefully their culture transformed, not from being one of conflict and fighting and killing, but to one of peace and love and unity, as they read about in a book like Ephesians, God's plan for them. 
And at first they thought that things were going well. And so all five missionaries planned to, to, to come and to explicitly share the gospel and to, to go with them and to visit the tribal leaders. But when they arrived, they did not find the kind of welcoming Wadawi that they had found before. Instead, they found men with spears and were murdered on the banks of the Amazon River. All five died. And most of these men's families, they were husbands, they were fathers, they left and went back to the United States. But a couple people stayed behind. One was Nate Saint's sister, Rachel. Her and the wife of one of the other uh, slain missionaries stayed and continued to work with that Wadawi people. And in fact, the gospel eventually did take root there. The culture began to change. And so Rachel had uh, her nephew, Steve, the, the uh, 10 years old, uh, the guy who's the older man in the picture, to come and live among this people. And one of the men, one of the men, Minkaye, was one of the men who had speared uh, Steve's father, Nate, to death. But now he was a Christian. And he looked at this little boy whom he had left fatherless by his sin, and he said, That kid's my responsibility now. I will adopt him as my tribal son and I will watch over him and I will care for him. And so now, now as a grown man, Steve's Steve's own kids are now the grandkids of this once killer, this once murderer, the man who murdered this man's father and now they are together as family. When Hollywood weighed this into a movie, The people on the set thought it was just a made-up script. They thought it was just a story. They thought it was Christian propaganda. And it wasn't until they were down filming in Ecuador, when they were filming the scene where the missionaries were were killed, and all the Wadawi who were still alive that had seen it happen originally began weeping and mourning and beating their chest. And all the camera crews said, "What, what is going on? And they said, you'll understand, this really happened. And then it began to dawn on them that here is a man who is best friends, who is loved, who is family, with the very man who killed his father. How do you explain that? You can't in human terms, but you can explain it in Christ. Because it is there the power of God is revealed and the uniting of all things is taking place even now. The last thing that we see this morning that helps us to understand who we are in Christ is this. The very thing that we should praise God for, our future inheritance. Paul has shown us how our relationship to God is rooted in the past with God's election, how it is realized in the present with our redemption, but he goes on to show us how how what we have in Christ will be fully realized in the future and how we can have an assurance of that. Now earlier we said in Christ we are adopted as sons. Now did some of you stop and wonder about that? Did that raise a question mark in your mind? Particularly here this morning, if you are a lady and you thought, wait a minute, I'm a son? I thought I would be a daughter. I'm a girl after all. Did that thought even occur to your mind? Well, there's a reason why Paul says sons. You know, some translations will actually say we have ado- we've experienced the adoption as God's children, not as sons. And the problem is that you completely miss the impact of what Paul is saying. You see, in the, in the, the Greek and Roman world in which Paul is writing, a, a man who was childless or perhaps his child had been killed or perhaps he was just a, a, a rat scallion, he didn't want to be his heir, he could adopt another son to be his full legal heir. And all the father had when he died would pass on to the son as an inheritance. But guess the law didn't allow a daughter to be a full heir. Couldn't happen, whether by blood or by adoption. Couldn't happen. 
Daughter couldn't be there. You had to have a son. And so what Paul is saying now, he knows there's women who are going to become Christians. He's not an idiot, okay? Uh, he's seen them. Uh, they've been integral to his ministry. And what he is saying, look, that limitation doesn't exist with God. Now, men and women receive the full inheritance just as a full legal heir, a son, would receive that inheritance. Just as there's no longer Jew and Gentile in terms of inequality and warring, now before God in this way, in this way as our adoption as God's children, there is no inequality between men and women. The same blessings that come to men also come to women. And all of this comes, he says, as our inheritance, which we will, are promised we will obtain because we have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, what's interesting, again, this is the promised Holy Spirit. Who promised him? Who promised he would come? God did. Back in the Old Testament, even in the prophet Joel, God said, It shall come to pass that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Now think about how that would have, how the Israelite, the Jewish person who first heard that, would have thought about it. So, what do you mean the spirit's going to pour out all flesh? Don't you pour your spirit on your people, God? Isn't that what you do? And yes, that's what he did. But he says, now in Christ, even the Gentiles receive the promise of the Spirit. And Paul says, that is the deposit. That is the down payment that something even greater is coming. If you think what you have now in Christ, you ain't seen nothing yet, Paul says. That is simply a small foretaste of the glory and the beauty and the full inheritance of God himself. Life forever without sin in the presence of his glory joy unspeakable that is what you have to look forward to so just as god the father planned our salvation and sent the son to earn our salvation so god the spirit applies our salvation the work of christ to our lives sealing us forever as god's people it's in hearing the gospel and trusting that the risen Christ is Lord of all things, even the Savior of the world, that God has moved us from death to life. We have gone from condemnation for sin to salvation from his wrath. And nothing can change that. Once you have experienced salvation from God, it is secure forever. Now, I've been told, particularly by a previous generation, that basic training used to be pretty rough. That it was very much about breaking a person's will, about teaching them that they're not their own anymore. They belong to the military and to the people of the United States. And they will tell them how to live and how to think and how to go about living their life. And that sometimes involved having very little sleep, very little food, grueling endurance of physical training. But notice what Paul says. Paul says that's not how, that's not how Christianity, that's not how God does identity formation he says god does not break your will by putting you through the paces by beating you up physically or spiritually rather he breaks your will by showing you the unbelievable unmeasurable unthinkable lavishing of his love and his grace and his mercy on your life in other words he brings you to nothing by showing how much he has loved you in his son, Jesus Christ. So the only thing left we have to do is to be able to stand, perhaps even bow in awe, and humbly acknowledge the lordship of Christ over our lives and say, oh God, I praise you for what you have done for me in him. 
I can never repay it. I can never thank you enough. Therefore, I just say, my life is yours. I will joyfully go and do and say whatever you ask of me all the days of my life. May it be so of us as well. Father, we are thankful for the book of Ephesians, which opens up great vistas of your plan for even before time began. And God, we pray that you would help us to get our minds around these things. And yet, Father, more than anything, we pray that you would humble us, that you would break us, God, simply by the overwhelming reality of the love you have shown us in Christ. Father, and that in seeing the great love you have for us, that, Father, we would respond with a great love for you that we would pursue holiness with joy, knowing that you have saved us from an eternal condemnation for our sins which we deserve. Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.